Can I give you a story that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this woman, what they did was they had this uh, cashier and they were videotaping her and she was having customers come through the line and she was kind of abrupt, right? She would say, are both of those watermelons yours? Can you put them on the thing then, please? You know, just coming off as rude, not caring, not good at her job. She made a few mistakes. The customer's like, I think that one's on sale. And she would sigh like that and bring it in. And they asked the folks, what do you think? And they rated her. She was mean. She should be fired. This is inexcusable. There's no professionalism here. And the next group that came in, they said, we want to tell you about the woman you're about to see in the cash. She's been dealing with an issue with her child. And the doctors gave her a call today on the way into work and said, there's nothing we can do. You should expect the worst in the next six months. And she went to work anyways because she didn't have a choice. And she's working. And mm. people are coming through. Same video. What did you think? What a hero. I can't believe it. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do that. In fact, they rated some of the customers as rude instead. Because context set up the opportunity to empathize and to ask a really important question. What would you do in this situation? It wasn't just... Mm -hmm. Here's a rule. You broke the rule. We don't care why. You are a cog in the machine and you violated the smoothness of the machine and you must pay the price kind of thing. Context mattered so much in that, in that situation. This is a podcast where two old friends, both Canadian, one black and one white, and both men explore what it looks like to adopt the mindset of an inclusive society. Instead of asking, how do we get there, Jake and Chris discuss, what does it look like to act as if we're already there? Welcome to The Disorienting Dilemma. I think I, I like how you, you talk about that context being important. It's not pity. There's em it's empathy, right? It's, 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 it's yeah. very different than just listing and saying, oh, I feel really bad. It's that, it's that human-centered, that connection to another person. Yeah that probably made that shift. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, everybody found something in their own experiences where they were able to find the empathy and then the grace and the understanding that a system just does not have. I had a second example that I wanted to give you that's really interesting. I, I am a bit of a, um, a fan of some certain neuroscientists, and one of them is David Eagleman. Anybody who know, mm -hmm. knows me has known I recommend his books, his videos, his series on PBS, on the brain. And he writes this one article uh, which resonated with me. He says, the legal, quote, the legal system rests on the assumption that we are practical reasoners. Yes. A term uh, that presumes at, at bottom the existence of free will. And the idea is that we use conscious deliberation when deciding how to act. That is, in the absence of external duress, we make free decisions. This concept of the practical reasoner is intuitive, but it is problematic. So free will is the basis. You, you had an option. You chose this option. This was the option that was illegal. Therefore, you're going to pay the price. But he brings in into this story the idea of somebody with Tourette's. Now, I have Tourette's. Tourette syndrome, which means that I have certain facial or vocal tics that I'm compelled to do. And he just says, we, all, we may all have the idea of free will, but certain people don't have a free won't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which means, and you've, you've been around me, you will do a whole show on Tourette's one day, me having it and you having to deal with a friend who has it. But there are times where I can't help but touch 
or poke or make a sound. And what makes it worse is when somebody says stop, and I've had people do that too, then the compulsion is even more. And even now talking about it, it's triggering it a little bit because that's just how the syndrome works. And it's in his mind, it's proof that the neural system in each person's brain is different and it has a profound effect on what they can and cannot do at any particular time. But that is not factored in by the, here's the line, you cross the line, you pay the consequences. There's no, I I know the legal system is supposed to build a case in terms of context. Why did somebody do a certain thing in in a court of law? But even then, wouldn't you say, and you would know better than me, wouldn't you say it tips more to what the system demands than what the context reveals? Sure. And and also what the system assumes. And most systems do this, not just the criminal system, a baseline normative. That's right. Yeah. So, well, we'll go for 80% because, you know, not 80% of folks have using your example, Tourette's. But, But so there's a question is... And not just Tourette's, but so is that an out? Is that uh, a get out of jail free? You know, literally, is that Kurt? a get out of jail? Yeah. yeah. Is it? I'm asking. I don't. Know. I don't think so. I mean, okay. up to a certain point, but it would still get me. Like, like if I get pulled over by police, and I was mm-hmm. taking really bad, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'd be in the back of the cruiser on the way to jail. Now, if you yeah. paint me a different color, right? Like you if I if I was a different shade of human colors. And I didn't speak English well. Most assuredly, I would be in jail. Yeah, because I've seen this, right? The physical, the arms coming out. An arm coming out, you know, a uh, a twitch with a closed yep. fist at the yep. end feels like a punch. Yep. I've been there. Yep. You have. <laughs> or, or the so, compulsion to say the one word that you should not say in a situation, mm-hmm. you've seen yeah. that happen too and it is yeah i i'm just i'm actually i've always thought of this how lucky i am that i'm not in a situation mm-hmm. involving police with my Tourette's full tilt yeah. because of a lack of training on this particular syndrome why would they get mm-hmm. specific training on this and also because of <laughs> the syndrome is always trying to like do me in it feels like in those situations <laughs> like oh here comes a bus yeah. jump in front of it like that's one of the thoughts you have with threats it's like oh no grab onto something have your friends grab you because Tourette's wants you to jump in front of the bus because it's so and then you obsess about it until the bus goes by and you're like oh, okay i'm glad that's over like holding in a sneeze like yeah you're trying you're yeah. trying yeah yeah so, so let me let me flip to the other okay. side of of what i do just quickly is you know, I said I work in a, in campus security. You have to figure out what's happening really, really quickly. Yeah. You get you get called to a scene. I'm I'm imagining, I know you, but let's say I don't let's know you. That. I get a call that there's a person out in the middle of the sidewalk, and it seems to be violent. Like who knows how the caller even describes yeah, it, it? It could easily look that Sorry? way because I'm usually yelling it, weird words and yeah, yelling yep. and the arms are flailing yep. and. They're going to, maybe the person says, maybe the person says, I don't know, maybe he's on something. I oh don't my know. gosh. Yeah. So, I, that's what I right? heard growing up. My dad used to, like anybody with some sort of thing yelling down the sidewalk, I guess they drank too much, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So just, just sort of playing, playing devil's advocate here, because I've been on this other side. <laughs> the information that you get going to a call, mm-hmm. you get a call, 
You have to go to the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. You're constantly getting updated about the person is this. They're wearing, you know, I get a description of you, glasses. White um, hair, hoodie. Beard, white hair. Yeah, got it. And I, I show up and the behavior is matching. And then all of a sudden, as I'm walking up to say, hey, how, how you doing, friend? The arm flails out, hits me in the face. Yep. Easy. We are, Easy. We are, we are into it. Yeah. And so... Based mm. on the context, based on what you knew, based on coming into mm. it, this is not it. It is not a simple solution either to take. This is where we talk about an over reliance on a response model and a law enforcement model to deal with human behavior. Yeah. It really works well with property related or serious crimes and public safety. Like we're always going to need police. Mm -hmm. We will always need. But is this a police call? Yeah. Well, who? It has to be because who else? Does the public know to call? Well, this is the the public safety transformation work. So when I talk to police about this, and if it's not about a defund conversation and say, when you got into policing, yeah. why'd you come in? Most will tell me, I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make people feel safe. They're sort of those are some of the stock answers. Then I ask a follow-up question. So... Every day, you've been in it for a while. How do you feel you're doing toward that? When you leave at the end of a shift, mm -hmm. do you feel like it's happened? Well, sometimes. Overwhelmingly, is that consistently how you feel? No, it's not. Yeah. I'm kind of stuck in a system. I'm not doing as much as I thought I would do. I feel like I'm just a lot of paperwork, just feeding the beast. Yeah. And third question I usually ask is, so your kid comes home and says... Uh, I want to be a police officer. Do you say, I'm so happy, I'm so proud? Or do you say, run far away? Yeah. Overwhelmingly, they say, run far away. Really? Overwhelmingly. Really? Actually. Overwhelmingly, they, t they say that. And hmm. I, because it's not what they thought it would be. Yeah. So what's the fix? How do we get it back to helping? They usually talk about if we could just take away the parts that we just aren't very good at. We know it's not working either. Yeah. Oh, okay. We know that, so to your, your situation using that, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to come to that call either. Yeah, because I don't think nobody's being threatened and I'm on the sidewalk just making a nuisance of myself, but n no property's being damaged, nobody's under th immediate threat. So it does feel like something that you, if you had an alternative, you could consider it. You, if you had an alternative, but then what's happening? So I show up and this is happening. I'm into, I've got a little bit of information. My brain is firing really yeah. quickly trying to process yeah. this. Are, are you a threat or are you not? Flight or fight kind of thinking. And yeah. we're, we're trying to get into this. I'm, I'm trying to make sense of what's, what's in front of me. I've got a little bit of information. It's probably the bad information, mm -hmm. but now the caller told me that you're probably on drugs. You mm -hmm. might... You're violent. None of that is actually true. Yeah. But it's, it's weighing in the background, and that is not my fault. That's just what I was told. How do I make sense of that? So we're, we're expecting in that moment when you're talking about diminished the load, the capacity. The cognitive to load. To, yeah. The cognitive yeah. load. Yeah. When we're talking about in that moment, I have to then be able to slow down, mm -hmm. reset, mm -hmm. think about maybe this person has Tourette's. Maybe this person... How do we get there? 
it is really interesting to think about the intersection between justice and law enforcement mm-hmm. responses and then what's actually happening in the brain. What's happening in your brain? What's happening in the person who calls for police? What are the biases? What are they seeing? Yeah. And how is that being interpreted? If it wasn't such high stakes life and death for some folks, it'd be really, really interesting to study long term and take our time. But there's different types of urgency right now. Yeah. Life and death is, a, I think, a very accurate way to think about it because once you're in the system, prisons make produce incredible criminals. Um, yeah. Your options for work and for the rest of your life are limited. And there's a huge consequence to running, and it's designed that way, running afoul of the law that could affect you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Dan Riesel, a neuroscientist who does work and in, in thinking about the role of neurogenesis in rehabilitation, mm-hmm. about particularly our responses are actually counterintuitive to what we hope to get out of a rehabilitative model. So if I accept our brains are always changing yeah. and that we're, we're mapping and that you could technically be a different person tomorrow with new experiences, new exposures, new so- socializing with other folks and different experiences, these highly stimulating environments could actually remap your brain and my brain to, to become literally a different person yeah. later. Yeah then it is counterintuitive to take people out of society, to lock them away, to reduce the likelihood of multiple contacts, experiences, perspectives. And then we start to limit it and we lock lock folks away for 10, 15, 20 years and then hope something changes. They're not, it's not a thriving environment. It's not. And so what, what uh, Dan Riesel's been able to do is say, well, what are the conditions present in restorative justice that allow for it, that allow for a different way, connecting with another human, hearing from them, an earnest opportunity to accept responsibility for the thing that you've done. Don't have it presumed that they understand what the impact was give people an opportunity to share their impact. So instead of you hearing from the judge that it's about my window, yeah. you actually hear uh, from me that it was about my sense of safety. And maybe maybe it starts to shift. You get to meet another person. So it's highly social. It requires you to do some sense making. Yeah. It's causing our brains to be mapped in a slightly different way post-offense that really contributes to overall recidivism rates. So. I think this is a great place maybe to pause our conversation because I would love to pick it up and talk about some of your experiences because mm-hmm. the behavior lining up with the neuroplasticity, or, or again, as David Eagleman in his great new book, Live Wired, would say that even during this conversation, our brain is reconfiguring at certain levels. And then, but what's so amazing about this restorative process is some of the behavior change that came out of it. And I'd love to explore that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks for uh, diving into this. This is really interesting to me. Even if it set off my Tourette's a little bit during the, (laughs) which people can't see, but I am now, you know, jerking my head around and stuff. Well, it's, yeah, it's an oddity. But yeah, the video. Maybe 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 we'll do a a live one. To get cleaned up. (laughs) (laughs) I I think before we kind of leave it, we've we've kind of talked about some heavy things. You know, we talked about, 
public safety uh, transformation. We talked about intimate partner violence. Yeah. We're talking about assumptions that we make around abilities. And yeah, a- a- should everybody and, be and equal under the law or yeah, versus we, equal we've, access we've, we've to cr- the law? Yeah, all that. Yeah. We've crammed a ton of yeah. stuff in here, and, and we want to be careful to have these conversations. We're covering a lot of ground and we, we know we're leaving stuff Absolutely. out. We know we don't rec- represent every single perspective. Uh, we probably are getting things wrong. So we welcome the feedback, welcome uh, folks joining this conversation to say, hey, you are partly right, yeah. but here's where you may have missed it or you may want to think differently. We've got lots to learn too, but we want to constantly be uh, giving folks opportunity to think through the same types of things we are. If you had not brought this up years ago with me, I I just, I would never ventured into any of this. So uh, yeah, it's the, we're stumbling forward, trying to figure out how do we live in an inclusive world, if it, as though we're inclusive. And this is definitely going to be one of those conversations. Has to be. This podcast is brought to you by the RW Institute, produced by Daniel Parker, recorded remotely in Los Angeles from Baltimore, Maryland, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Be sure to subscribe so you can keep up with the conversation. Care to react? Submit your comments at rw.institute or on the comment feature where you're listening now.